Hello and welcome to Sam Splaining Science. I'm Sam, I'm your host. I'll be Sam Splaining the Science and today we're talking about pet. Not the cute and cuddly kind, the imaging kind. But before we get into that, we can't skip the pleasantries. So hello, how are you? I hope you're doing well. I hope you've had a good week so far. Um, it's been a while since I've recorded. I went away for a conference last week. Um, so I recorded before the conference and then now I'm recording late on Saturday. So hopefully this will be up on Sunday. Um, but yeah, I was at a conference. I documented the conference on my Instagram. Um, so if you follow along on Instagram at Sam Splaining Sci, I kind of tried to show some background conference things. Um, if you missed it, on my stories, it's on my conferences highlight on my Instagram page. So you can still check it out. It's not too late. Um, conferences are like my favorite part of being a scientist. So I'm really excited to go to conferences, but now also to like share the experience online. It's been fun. Um, so hopefully you saw that. Hopefully you checked it out. Hopefully you enjoyed, um, the conferences in Miami, which was very nice. The weather was very warm, except for the days where I wasn't inside. Cause that's usually how it works, right? The days where I was in the conference from eight until five. So basically the entire time the sun was up, um, the weather was like 80 degrees, like beautiful weather. And then I took Saturday, Sunday, and Monday to just sort of like chill in Florida. And the weather was literally like 50 degrees. And everyone there was like, this is not normal. Like it's so cold. And I'm like, of course the three days that I could actually spend enjoying the warm sunlight. It's not there. That's sometimes just how life goes. Um, but you know what? It was still warmer than New York. So I'll take it. Um, <laughs> but, uh, the conference back to the conference that I went to, um, was a lot of pet imaging, related stuff. And I've actually been doing pet imaging research since 2013 and I've never talked about it on the podcast. So I figured that maybe this episode, I can talk a little bit about pet imaging and what it is and, you know, just the cool things about it. Like I said, I've been working on it for almost 10 years and I love it. I think it's so interesting. I think it's so cool. So I'm really excited to get into this episode. So without further ado, we'll get into today's questions. If my computer decides to work, here we go. Okay. So we have three questions today. The first is what is pet imaging? Because I feel like there are a lot of people out there who have probably never heard of a pet scan or pet imaging. So I'll kind of give a breakdown as to like what that actually is. And then the second question, we're going to get a little technical and we're going to talk about how pet imaging works. And then the third question is, what is it used for? So we'll get a little bit into like the physics with question two, but then a little bit into like the biological applications with question three. Um, and I love this type of research because it lets me do a little bit of both, right? I can learn about the physics and, you know, do a lot of physics stuff and then also do a lot of biological stuff, um, which I personally like. And hopefully you think it's very cool too by the end of this episode. Okay. So let's start with question one. What is PET imaging? PET imaging stands for positron emission tomography, PET, PET imaging. And it's a functional imaging modality, meaning that it gives more information about the 
function of the tissue over the structure of the tissue. So if you've ever seen an MRI scan you of like the brain, for example, you might be able to see like the white matter of the brain, the gray matter of the brain, how the brain is shaped, how it folds, how it, you know, how it looks, the structure of the tissue. Whereas PET imaging doesn't always give us the exact structure of the tissue. It actually tells us more about what the tissue is made up of. Um, and like specific, well, I should say rather, it shows us the distribution of specific proteins or other targets in the tissue. Um, and we can choose what specific proteins we want to look at. Um, so PET imaging uses radioactivity uh, in order to get the image. And the way that radioactivity is incorporated into this is we use what's called a radio tracer or radio ligand. And this radio tracer is designed to specifically target a target of interest in the brain or in the body, anywhere in the body really. So we can create, um, design a molecule that's radioactive that can specifically bind to say in the brain, if we want to look at a dopamine receptor, we can create a radioactive molecule that specifically binds to that dopamine receptor. And then when we inject that radioactivity in that radioactive molecule into people, it will go throughout their body and find the dopamine receptors and bind to those dopamine receptors. And then we can detect the radioactivity to get this image. So these images that we get tell us, like I said, a lot about the tissue property. It tells us a lot about the proteins that are in the tissue and like how much protein there is and where it is. Um, but it doesn't give us, like I said, a lot of information about the tissue structure. So oftentimes you'll see a PET image combined with an MRI image or a PET image combined with a CT image because both MRI and CT are very good medical imaging modalities to look at the structure of the tissue, to look at where the tissue is and like what it is. Um, whereas PET tells us a lot about what it's made up of if that makes sense. One more important thing that I wanna note before we move on, I mentioned very casually that this uses radioactivity and that might freak people out. Like radioactivity, what? That's crazy. Um, I agree, it is crazy, but like crazy cool. Um, the radioactivity that is administered in a PET scan is firstly, ideally, in order for it to be clinically approved, has to be not a dangerous amount of radioactivity, right? It's not too much that it'll make you sick, that it'll give you radioactive poisoning. It's nowhere near that amount of radioactivity. Um, it's actually, I should have double checked this, but I'm pretty sure that one PET scan on average is the same radioactivity exposure. So you're exposed to the same amount of radioactivity from one PET scan as you are to like I think it's like six or eight cross-country flights. It's like when you're higher up in the atmosphere, you're more exposed to the sun's radiation. And like that amount of radiation exposure from like six or eight cross-country flights is the same as one PET scan. So it's not like it's going to really 
hurt you or harm you from the amount of radioactivity that you're getting from a single scan. Um, there are also people who work with PET scans every day, right? There's um, nuclear medicine technicians who are administering these radioactive um, radio tracers, radio ligands, and they're all, their safety is also like very highly regulated through OSHA and like other radioactive safety um, offices at hospitals and universities and all that stuff. Um, so yes, it does use radioactivity, but there are a lot of um, steps in place to like keep it safe, a very safe level. Um, that could be a whole nother episode, honestly, the safety of radioactivity. But uh, I just wanted to say that because I hope it didn't scare anybody or like freak anybody out that it was radioactive um, because PET scans are safe. Okay, so that was question number one, a very brief overview of what is pet imaging. So now let's get into question number two, which is how does pet work? So um, I cited an article down below that's a review article that talks about an overview of pet imaging, how it works, its applications, all that good stuff. Um, but I'm actually going to use slides that I've used pretty much all throughout grad school as I was presenting pet research. Um, so this is like a very helpful diagram, but I have one of my own that I'm going to use, but I linked this review article down below in case you want to look at it and in case you want more information. Of course, if you want more information about pet, you can also just like DM me and like ask me, I'd love to answer it. Um, but this article is also there and there's plenty of other like free open access review articles just about pet in general. Um, so if you want to just like Google that too. Google's free, as they say. Um, okay, but I'm gonna get into my slides to explain how does PET work. So remember those radio ligands that I mentioned, the radioactive part of PET? Um, these radio ligands are radioactive because they have what's called a radioisotope or radioactive isotope. An isotope is basically a version of an atom that's different. So, I hope that's like a good enough explanation. So basically we could have like a carbon atom that is just like regular boring carbon. And then we can have a carbon that's like a little different, like carbon plus, carbon extra. And that means that the nucleus, so the center of the carbon atom is a little off, whether it has an extra neutron or one less neutron or like whatever. It's still carbon because it has six, I think, protons. I think it's six protons. But just something about the nucleus or something about the atom in itself is off. And um, that makes it radioactive. It makes it unstable, right? So these radioisotopes are unhinged, essentially. They're unstable atoms with a nucleus that's a little off. And that's what makes them radioactive. So in order to get back to normal, to get to a stable position, I guess, to get to a stable state, these unstable nuclei, these unstable atoms need to undergo a radioactive decay is what we call it. But basically it changes, it alters the atom in some way so that now the atom can be stable again. So like if you're unstable and you're like super stressed out or whatever, you're like, oh my God, I'm, I'm off. Something's off. I'm not centered. You could like scream into a pillow 
and release that energy. And then you're like, oh, I'm better. I'm stable, right? That's basically what radioactive decay is, right? It's like you're unstable. You're at like a heightened energy state. And you're like, I need to release this energy to be normal again. That's what the, that's what the carbon 11 atom is doing or the fluorine 18 atom is doing or the oxygen 15 atom is doing in this case. So let's walk through it a little bit. So if we have a carbon 11 atom, this is radioactive. Um, so this carbon 11 atom will undergo radioactive decay and the way that it decays, the way that it screams into its pillow is it emits, well, it does a couple of things, but one of the things that it does is, is it emits a positron, which is the P, E, and PET, positron emission tomography. So carbon-11 will emit a positron, but that's not really the magic part, to be honest with you. In PET, we don't actually care, well, we do care about the positron being emitted, but we don't measure the emission of the positron from the radioactive molecule. It's the steps that follow that we really care about and that we measure. So we're gonna walk through those right now. So this positron is emitted from a positron emitting isotope like carbon 11, um, fluorine 18, or oxygen 15. Those are all examples of positron emitting Pro positron emitting, <laughs> goodness me, positron emitting radioisotopes. So because they're unstable, they'll scream into their pillow and they'll release a positron. They'll emit a positron. The positron, you might be like, what the hell is that? What does that mean? The positron is the antimatter of an electron. So if you've ever, if we're going back to like high school chemistry days when we're thinking about atoms and how atoms are made up of protons, neutrons, and electrons, right? Um, so electrons are like the negatively charged particle and they typically hang out around the outside of the nucleus of the atom. And the electron is very small. It has a small size, it has a small mass but it's negatively charged. The positron is the antimatter of an electron. So it has the same mass, the same size, but the charge is opposite. So it is positively charged. So positrons are positive, electrons are negative, and they're the same otherwise. They're twins, but they're like evil twins, you know? So the positron that's emitted by this nucleus will interact with a nearby electron because atoms are everywhere. They're, they're, you literally can't swing a dead cat without hitting an atom because it's in the atmosphere, it's in our bodies, it's, it's everywhere, atoms are everywhere. So this positron is emitted and it hits a nearby electron. But because they're evil twins and they don't like each other, they interact with each other and a process called annihilation happens. And this annihilation event transforms the mass of these two little particles into energy. Um, so it's a little E equals MC squared moment. Thank you, Albert Einstein. So we get energy from this reaction that is related to the mass of the two particles that collide and like basically fist fight each other. They have a little scuffle. And from this scuffle, they disappear and energy is released. 
And this energy that's emitted from this annihilation event is released in the form of two gamma rays that are of known energy, which is 511 kiloelectron volts. You don't have to know that, but that's just like from the equation, you can get the 511 energy measure based on the mass of the electron positron. And then C is a constant. It's the speed of light. Um, I'm really going off on my nerd rant today. I, I really wanted to like not, I wanted to like play it cool. I don't think I'm doing a good job. <laughs> and I'm sorry about it, but I just, I just love, I love this stuff. I think it's so cool. Anyway, um, because this annihilation event happens, these two gamma rays are emitted and they're emitted exactly 180 degrees from one another and they have a known energy. And that is the physics magic behind pet imaging, right? That this cascade of events, the radioactive molecule emits a positron. The positron meets its evil twin, the electron. They fight, and the re result of this fight, this annihilation, is energy. And then this energy is what we care about when we're measuring PET imaging, when we're collecting PET scans. This is the energy. Th these two gamma rays that are 180 degrees apart, that's what we care about. One quick thing that I want to know before we move on is that gamma rays are, uh, this is a callback to our good friend, the electromagnetic spectrum. Gamma rays are very, very high energy. Um, so they have, you know, very short wavelengths with very high energy along the electromagnetic spectrum. So they have much shorter wavelengths and higher, much greater energy than visible light or UV light or infrared light or anything. It's really like the most energetic form of wave particle. I don't know. That's just a little to put things in perspective. Um, okay. So now that we know like on the particle level, what's happening with this radioisotope, it's emitting a positron. The positron is undergoing annihilation. It, it gets these gamma rays. Like how does that fit into the process of going to get a PET scan? So let's now bring it up to like the macro level. Okay. Um, so the PET process starts with what we call a cyclotron. A cyclotron is a machine that basically creates these isotopes, the carbon 11, the fluorine 18. Then once we have these isotopes, we can do some radiochemistry to add these radioisotopes to the molecule, the bigger molecule that's going to bind specifically to our target of interest, right? If we want to look at, taking the example from earlier, a dopamine receptor. We'll have this molecule that will bind to this dopamine receptor and we'll just add the radioactive tag on it, essentially, with radiochemistry. And that is our radio tracer. Once that molecule has the radioactive tag on it, that's our radio tracer or our radio ligand. Same thing, tomato, tomato. After we have our radio tracer created, there's a QC process, of course, to make sure that it's like clean and good. And then um, it gets injected into our patient who is laying in a PET scanner. Um, and then it's injected to them intravenously, right? So the radio tracer will go into the veins 
and thought my heater was turning on. Maybe not. Okay. So the radio tracer will be injected into the vein and then inside your vein also is your blood, which is circulates around your body. So the radio tracer will then with your blood be circulated around your body and eventually it'll get to your brain, for example, if we're looking at a brain image, which a lot of these examples are in the brain because I love the brain. Um, so let's just say, sticking with the dopamine receptor, this dopamine receptor radio ligand will go through my body and then get to my brain. And it'll find the dopamine receptors in my brain and bind to them, right? That's what it's made to do, essentially. And then once it binds to them, it's still radioactive. And then it'll hang out there for a little while because it really likes the dopamine receptor. It'll bind to it and stick to it. And then eventually it'll undergo this radioactive decay process and it'll emit the positron and then do the whole thing that we talked about two, two minutes ago. So if we have a person's head here in a PET scanner, um, Sorry, by the way, a lot of this I'm realizing is a little visual. Um, so if you want to watch along on YouTube, at Sam Explaining Sci, that might be helpful. Um, if not, use your imagination. Pretend you have a person's head inside of a ring. Um, and this ring, this pet, is a PET scanner, which is made up of gamma ray detectors, right? So the PET scanner is made up of little blocks that catch gamma rays. Okay, so if the annihilation event happens where the dopamine receptors are in your brain, then it'll emit two gamma rays that are 180 degrees apart, and then either side of the scanner, or both sides of the scanner, will pick up those gamma rays. And that was what we call a coincidence event. It's picking up the annihilation event, the result of the annihilation event, essentially. And that's the data that we collect over time. So that happens a lot throughout the scan, wherever there's dopamine receptors, that's constantly happening. Depending on the scan and what you're doing, the scan could last 20 minutes or it could last two hours. Um, a lot of research scans last at least 90 minutes, maybe two hours. Um, but some clinical scans last maybe 20 minutes. Um, and, you know, that just, it depends on what you're imaging and how, what it's used for and all that stuff. So essentially we collect these gamma ray uh, coincidence events over the duration of the scan. And that's the data that we collect. And we, we also track the time when those events are detected. And we take that data and we do some magic with it. And we get eventually images and this is very much a understatement of like the little magic. There's a lot of work that goes into it. Um, but eventually from these coincidence events and the times and the locations around the scanner, we can reconstruct the data to get images of the brain. And then from these images of the brain, we can do some processing and basically determine where, which parts of the brain are what, right? We can look in the frontal cortex, we can look in the cerebellum, we can look in the hippocampus, we can look in the, you know, all parts of the brain, any part that we want to, that's inside of the scanner. And then we can determine how much radioactivity 
was in that region of the brain throughout the scan. And depending on how much target is in the brain, the level of radioactive tracer that's bound to that target will change over time. And we can use some fancy math to model the trajectory of radioactivity collection and dispersion from the tissue, from the brain, and get a better idea of exactly how much radio tracer and thus how much target is in the brain. And that's like a very helpful value. It tells us a lot about the tissue and like what it's made up of and how much protein or how much, you know, dopamine receptor is in that person's brain at that person at that particular time. So that was my little summary of how PET works. I hope that I didn't get lost in the sauce. I definitely did get lost in the sauce, but I I hope I didn't. <laughs> and um but I hope it was informative. I hope maybe it gives some clarity as to like, I mean, a lot of people who get PET scans will only see like the injection, right? And then they'll eventually get results from the doctor or from, you know, if you're part of a research study, you can like follow along with the research study and like look at the results when they're published. But, um, you know, you don't really see a lot of the steps that go into it. So hopefully this was a fun adventure of from the very beginning of creating the radioisotope to the very end of quantifying how much target is in your brain um, or wherever. Because like I said, I focus on the brain, but you can really do pet imaging of anything. There's pet imaging of the heart, of the liver, of the whole body. So um, yes, that's how it works. Okay, so now let's get into question three. Question three is, what is it used for? Why do we use PET imaging? Um, so PET imaging is used a lot in nuclear medicine and like nuclear medicine applications. There's two main, I guess, functions of PET imaging. One is for research and one is for the clinic. Um, so the examples that I'll show here are a little bit of both. Um, but I think... I don't mean to presume, but I think a lot of people in just like not research, like in, I think a lot of people will probably hear PET more often in the clinical context versus the um, like research context. I think more people will get PET scans for clinical needs versus people participating in PET research, if that makes sense. Um, but I gave some examples of both here and we'll walk through what they are and like how they're implemented. So the first example that I wanted to give is what I think is probably the most common um, use of PET imaging probably in the world. And that is using fluorine 18 FDG or fluorodeoxyglucose PET to measure glucose metabolism in cancer diagnosis. So let's take a step back. FDG, fluorodeoxyglucose, is basically a glucose molecule where they pluck off an oxygen and they plug in a radioactive fluorine, an F18. And this F18 acts just like the carbon 11 in the example that I showed earlier, where F18 will emit a positron as it radioactively decays. So it's a PET radial ligand and that we can inject into people 
it looks just like glucose. So it acts just like glucose. And our cells, almost every cell in our body, probably every cell in our body, takes up glucose from our bloodstream and uses it to make energy. And some cells in our body use a lot of energy. Our brain, for example, uses a lot of energy. So it takes up a lot of glucose and it breaks that glucose and it makes energy from that glucose. Um, another part of the body that will use a lot of energy and thus will need a lot of glucose is cancer cells. So cancer, if you don't know, is essentially the rapidly and uncontrollably dividing of cells. Cell division takes a lot of energy. So cancer cells use a lot of energy, so they need a lot of glucose. So the theory behind this FDG and why it works so well in cancer diagnosis is that this radioactive molecule looks exactly like glucose and cells will take it up like it's glucose and it'll use it like it's glucose essentially. So when we inject FDG into a person who has maybe a lesion or something on a CT scan or an MRI scan that looks questionable, but they can't really tell is this cancerous or is it just like a regular, normal, harmless growth, you know, like a cyst or something. So this is why FDG is useful and this is why PET is useful because it doesn't tell us tissue structure, but it does tell us tissue function, right? So we can inject this radioactive glucose and anything that's taking up a lot of glucose will take up our radioactive tracer and then there will be a lot of, a lot of radioactivity taken up in that region in the PET scan. So the example that I'm showing here on the slide, if you're watching on YouTube, is an example of somebody who has colon cancer or colorectal cancer, I believe. And there's a PET image that's overlaid onto a CT image. So the CT image, the CAT scan, will give us the structure, right? It'll tell us where the bones are, where the heart is, where the liver is, where the brain is. Um, and then the PET scan will tell us where there's a lot of glucose being taken up, right? So the brain in this image is very hot on the color scale. So this particular color scale, yellows and whites are very hot, meaning that there's a lot of PET activity, radioactivity in that region. And then the darker reds and the black mean that there's no radioactivity. So there's no tracer, essentially, radio tracer uptake in that region. So for the brain, for example, that takes up a lot of glucose, there's a lot of radioactivity in the brain in this PET image, as we would expect. Because the brain is always working. It's working overtime sometimes. Um, but in this case here, they noticed that there was a growth in the, the gut, essentially, so they used this PET scan to say, okay, well, is this growth in the gut cancerous? Well, probably is cancerous if it's taking up a lot of glucose and rapidly dividing, using that glucose to make energy so that it can rapidly divide. And that's essentially what they're showing here is that there's a hot spot in the gut um, of this patient to basically say, we think that this 
lesion is taking up a lot of glucose because it's cancerous and it's rapidly dividing, more so than the rest of the tissue around it, right? The rest of the tissue in the gut is not taking up as much glucose. So we think that maybe this spot here is um, taking up a lot of glucose, using that glucose to make energy to rapidly divide because the cells that are taking it up are cancerous. I think, you know, I'm sure we all know someone in our lives who has some form of cancer or who has had some form of cancer. So this is sort of, if you heard them say, oh, I have to go back for a PET scan, this is what it is essentially. Um, you know, and then they also use this for after treatment, right? They don't just use it for diagnosis, they use it for follow-up. And they say, okay, like, you know, is there, you know, they'll see this and they'll go through treatment, whether it's chemotherapy or radiation or whatever. And then after the treatment ends, they'll do another PET scan to say, is it still hot? Is it still taking up a lot of energy? Or is it, you know, the same as the background? Because ideally, if the treatment killed all the cancer, that hot spot will no longer be there. So that's sort of the purpose of PET in, um, in cancer detection and cancer treatment response. Another example of clinical PET uh, is applications in Alzheimer's disease. So there are a number of radio tracers. This one here shown on the slide is F18 Florbetaben, which is a PET radio ligand that binds to a protein called beta amyloid. Um, beta amyloid is a protein that collects in the brains of people who have Alzheimer's disease. And um, actually I did an episode on Alzheimer's disease a while back. Um, I don't remember what episode number it was. I could look it up. I'll look it up because I think that's probably good manners if you're interested in learning more about Alzheimer's disease. Um, I can direct you to it. It is episode number 24. Episode 24, Alzheimer's disease and how we can sort of treat it. There's actually updates on that. I wonder if I should do like a follow-up because there have been a lot of updates since I posted that over the summer. But episode 24, I talk about Alzheimer's disease and one of the key proteins that's important in Alzheimer's disease is beta amyloid or amyloid beta depending on how you want to say it, it's the same thing. Um, so we can use PET to image beta amyloid in the brains of people who maybe are showing signs of Alzheimer's disease, whether it's memory issues or cognitive issues. Um, we can give them a Florbetaben scan, essentially, and based on the pattern of the collection of beta amyloid, as indicated by the radioactivity in the Florbetaben scan, Based on the, the, the pattern of the collection of beta amyloid, we can determine whether they have Alzheimer's disease or whether they don't. Um, so like a normal uh, floor beta band scan where there's no indication of amyloid re or yeah, amyloid related pathology in this patient, um, the cortical regions or the gray matter regions of the brain, will be relatively cool, shown here as like blue-green color. And then the white matter in the brain will be hotter or, you know, more red-yellow colors. Um, this is sort of a typical, I guess, map of beta amyloid in the brain. 
But it's when beta amyloid starts to really aggregate in the gray matter in the cortex, which is shown on the other um, image here, that's when we start to see more implications of Alzheimer's disease symptomology. Um, so this is another useful tool in the clinic to say, okay, well, if this person is starting to collect amyloid in their brain, they may be developing Alzheimer's disease. So that's another example. Um, a third example that I chose to talk about is an example using a radio tracer that I used a lot in grad school. Um, it is a radio tracer. Oh no, my slide is cut off. Devastating. I'm not going to fix it. I'll just read it for you. Um, <laughs> it's a radio tracer that binds to a protein that exists in synapses in our brains. Our synapses are like the brain cell connections, the connections between our neurons. And this PET tracer, since it binds to proteins that are in synapses, can tell us a little bit about the synaptic density or the amount, the relative amount of brain cell connections in different regions of the brain. And there are a lot of implications and a lot of applications for this radio tracer. But one that was published showed that synaptic density was reduced in people who had very high severity major depressive disorder. So this is just another example. This is more research. This is not diagnostic by any means. It's more so that we can use it to better understand depression in this case. But honestly, really any neurological neurodevelopmental, neurodegenerative, neuropsychiatric condition. Um, there's a lot of pet research in the brain because it doesn't just, this is just one of many pet tracers that we can look at, looking at one of many protein targets in the brain. Um, so there's a lot of pet studies looking at Parkinson's disease and like the dopamine system in Parkinson's disease is very, uh, is altered. So understanding what that looks like in Parkinson's versus healthy controls. And then once we understand in living patients the difference between the brains, maybe we can use these proteins as either targets for treatment or targets to monitor treatment. But these are just a couple of ways that PET can be used both in the clinic and in research. Um, there are many, many other ways that we can use PET imaging, not just in the brain, but honestly all over the body, um, to better understand the biology, right? To better understand how our body works biologically, and then if there are any diseases or disorders or dysfunctions, can we identify these targets with PET imaging that we can eventually use as a target for treatment or um, you know, as a way to monitor treatment recovery. Um, so yeah, I think it's really cool. I think it's really fascinating. I could talk about it for hours and hours, but I won't. Um, but hopefully this, you know, kind of gives you an idea of why we use it, um, and why it's like super helpful in the clinic and in research. Okay. So the takeaways for today's episode so first is that PET is a functional imaging technique that uses a little bit of radioactivity to tell us a lot about what's going on inside the body. Um, 
so you know it, it uses its its basis is particle physics, but it can tell us so much about biological systems and what's going on in the living human body, whether it's the brain, whether it's the heart, the liver, anything. Um, it's so informative and it's so, so cool. I hope you think it's as cool as I think it is because I think it's amazing. Um, clearly I think it's amazing. I've been working with it for a decade. Um, and I'm still this psyched about it after working with it for a decade. So I think that says a lot, but anyway, all right, that's all for this week's episode. Um, please don't forget to follow, rate, and review the podcast wherever you're listening and subscribe on YouTube, please. You can also follow the show on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at SamSplainingSci. So connect with me there and ask questions if you'd like. You can also submit your questions to samsplainingscience.com slash ask. So if you have anything that you want me to samsplain, ask away. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. I hope you learned a little bit and laughed a little bit, and I will talk to you next time. Bye.